ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan on Gadigal Land. And me, Tegan Taylor on Jagera and Turrbal Land. Today, the Greens want to legalise recreational cannabis. What does the evidence tell us about the drug's health effects? For premature babies, two minutes can make a big difference. And a new report into the use of antibiotics in Australia and antimicrobial resistance. We're still one of the highest prescribing nations in the world. But first, Norman, I want to talk to you about one or two big things in health news this week, starting, of course, with COVID. We have switched Coronacast over to our new show, which is called What's That Rash? But we did promise people we would keep them up to date on COVID here on The Health Report. And it's just as well because this eighth wave is really cresting. Yeah, just whenever we change what we do with Coronacast news, something new happens. We should know by now. So your hospitalisations are going up. We, we don't exactly know what's going on because we've stopped weekly reporting, so we don't really have a good fix on it, but clearly the West Australians are worried about it and they've introduced um, a limited mask mandate in public hospitals um, in Western Australia to try and limit the spread in in hospitals, which is really quite a sensible move um, because masks do prevent it. The trouble is the blue masks are not as good as the N95. And we still really haven't done a lot about indoor air quality and fully accepted that this is aerosol spread. So we're still chasing our tails a little bit. But I'd had a look at um, some of the reports, uh, the um, surveillance, the respiratory surveillance reports, which do give you, particularly in New South Wales, an idea of what's going on. And respiratory syncytial virus is going down. COVID is going up. Uh, but interestingly, influenza is hanging around beyond its normal season. So there's a, there's a fair bit of influenza around. And I reckon that's what I had a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> and it took a while. It was pretty toxic. That's why you were so grumpy. Yeah. And <laughs> croaky. <laughs> and a, a different uh, health story, the drugs that have been in the news all year, GLP-1 agonists like semaglutide, most people know it as Zempic. They are for diabetes. They also seem to be very effective as weight loss drugs, but new studies um, that have just come out have tested whether they might also protect against cardiovascular disease. Yeah, two studies that are worth talking about, both published in the New England Journal of Medicine. One of them was in late October, and th- it was... Ozempic. This was, let's just get the names, the brand names, right? So it's both have got the same drug, semaglutide. Ozempic is when it's used for diabetes and Wagovi when it's used for weight loss. Um, so this first study, which is I'm going to talk about, was in late October. And it was a randomized trial. And it's called non-inferiority study. And essentially what they're trying to do is not stop all other drugs. They're trying to, when you do a non-inferiority study, you're trying to compare uh, a new medication to standard care rather than pure placebo. And uh, this was a randomized trial in 3,300 patients who had type 2 diabetes, most of whom had coronary heart disease. So type 2 diabetes, it puts you already at risk of coronary heart disease. These people had coronary heart disease already. Um, whilst I say this was placebo control, so they got a placebo injection of semaglutide once a week or the real thing for two years, as well as standard care for their diabetes and their cardiovascular risk. And they looked at a composite outcome, which was death from cardiovascular disease, heart attack and stroke. Now, you've just got to be a little bit careful about some of these. First of all, it's a non-inferiority study. So, 
you know, they're probably making some interpretations which are not necessarily there at the beginning. And, the com- and combining those outcomes together is, is having five bob each way because if one doesn't come up as positive as showing benefit, one or two of the others might, and therefore you get a benefit overall. And in fact, that's what happened in this study. Death rates were similar, so they did not show a difference in death rates, which may just be simply it didn't go on long enough. There was a non-significant reduction in heart attacks, but a very significant reduction in strokes. So when you put it all together, the strokes got them out of jail in a sense, so they showed a 26% composite benefit here. And 45 people needed to be treated for one person to benefit. The other good thing that happened in this study was that kidney disease decline was slower in that group, and um, but there was an increased risk, and they can't explain why, of retinopathy of diabetes. In other words, the blood vessels at the back of the eye deteriorated faster than they did in the placebo group, which is a worry because that can cause blindness and certainly need an eye surgeon to, to intervene. So there's that. You, you're sounding very cynical. Uh, the reporting I've seen around these particular studies has been quite breathless. And, you know, another sort of thing with this miracle drug. What, so what's, it's, it's yeah. important not to be breathless and to be realistic. So here, the, the drug companies construct their outcomes to give them the best chance of a positive result. So this is a positive result. There is a reduction in stroke, not in deaths at this point, kidney disease declining slower. That's all good news, but there are some negatives there. But you can't say that it's right across the board, that it's heart attacks, heart and deaths from cardiovascular disease, not in this study. They can say, well, maybe it'll happen in the future. That's fine. The second study was in people without diabetes, 17,000 people, big study, who had um, an average BMI of 33. So it was 20, BMI of 27 over, Aged 45 and over, semi-glutide versus placebo. They lost an average of 9.4% of their body weight compared to 0.8% of body weight in the placebo group. And again, a composite, um, a composite result of heart attack and stroke down by 20%. Deaths were down in this study, but it wasn't significantly significant. And they got a reduction in heart failure of about 20%, which is really good news although 16% of the people on the study stopped the drug because of side effects. So there's the study there, which again, a lot of, um, a lot of joy about, and it, they are by and large good results. And it's a big study, so you've got to say these effects are real. The question is why um, this occurs, and nobody really understands why you're getting a benefit on heart disease. It could be that with as you lose weight, your body has less inflammation in it, it could be that your blood vessels work better. Um, and the other caveat in this study is that for some reason, the group of people who were on semaglutide had high blood pressure. And um, in the question that the editorialist, the person who wrote the editorial asked is that if the high blood pressure had been better controlled um, without semaglutide, would you have got the same result? We don't know. Big study, though. Yeah, these uh, drugs aren't going anywhere. We're going to continue to watch them. But a few years ago, Australia passed a milestone in its relationship with a different drug, cannabis, legalising it for medicinal use. This year, the Greens Party is trying to push it further, saying recreational cannabis should be legal too. 
They say it would keep people out of the criminal justice system, it would cut money going to organised crime and it would generate billions of dollars in tax revenue. On the other hand, bodies like the Australian Medical Association are arguing that legalising it sends the wrong signal. If Australia did go ahead and legalise cannabis, we wouldn't be alone. In the past few years, countries like Canada and many states in the USA have done so. And what this means is that we now have a lot of data from those countries about what happens when the drug is legalised. So let's take a look at that data. Michael Farrell is Director of the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre. Welcome, Mike Farrell. Hi. Good to talk to you. Why don't we start from the other side of the equation? Are there any health reasons to legalise recreational cannabis? Well, I personally think we should disconnect the discussion of the health effects of cannabis and its legal status because we get them too mixed up together and then we can't clarify, have a good discussion. Look, there are health harms with cannabis and we need to be conscious of them and be able to speak about them dispassionately. So what is the way to approach this conversation then? Well, you know, the, the, what we're actually seeing is as the population changes, we're seeing increasing support. We now have about 40% of the Australian population and household surveys supportive of cannabis legalisation uh, in, in comparison. So that's continued to go up. Um, the big issues that we're seeing is changes like the in the United States, huge changes. We've also seen in Thailand recently huge changes. So the, the trend is in, in one particular direction. Uh, whether that, So what, what will happen in Australia? There's currently not much political will for legalisation, but that might change. So in terms of data, in this country where it has become legal, what are we seeing in terms of trends in usage? And I mean, we should talk about the health effects as well. Well, the, in usage terms in the United States, what we have actually seen is uh, increase in use, increase in daily use, and uh, but the, the sky has not fallen in. What we have seen in the United States is a very commercial, direct sales, profit-making model, which most people would have argued against. And if you look, the other countries like Uruguay, Malta, Canada have introduced a much more restrictive model. Um, so the question is, can you have a legalization model without a commercialization? And that's one of the million dollar questions. The other thing we have seen from the states is that the big claims for tax gain on it are actually not coming home. They're actually seeing falling prices and falling tax revenues. And there's a big issue and debate about what you do use tax for. Do you use tax to control the THC level or, or is that the way you might do it? There's a, a lot of very interesting aspects of this coming out through the different experiments that are being done in different countries. I mean, one of the big pillars of the Greens' argument is that it would generate $28 billion in revenue over the first decade. You're saying that, that those calculations might not be something you can really hang your hat on. Very much so. If we go by the American experience, we're seeing falling price and falling. So if the price, if there's ample supply, the price of the of the candles will go down and thereby the tax revenue on it will go down. 
So we do have bodies like the Australian Medical Association coming out in the last couple of days arguing against it, saying it sends the wrong signal to people, it sends a signal of safety. What's the message coming out of NDARC? Well, of course, we, we, we are in the position of supporting the study of this and looking at the options. We are not a policy advocacy group, but what you would want to say is in terms of risks, the risks are associated with things like if we look at the vaping technology that's coming in, we're also seeing that when cannabis was applied to vaping technology, there was a lot of uh, serious health harms and deaths associated with it. So there, you know, it's, it isn't just cannabis. It might also be the technology with which with which it's delivered. And uh, with any significant change, there's going to be risks. There's also going to be benefits. And um, it's a question of how you mix those two together to decide, from a, a, a national policy point of view, what's the best option. How does it's it's always a bit of a crude comparison to draw, but I think where a lot of people's minds go when we start talking about legalising substances that we kind of know are bad for us, we talk about alcohol, we talk about tobacco. How does cannabis, how should we sort of weigh cannabis against those that are already legal? Well, the the basic argument about that is if you look at the model for both tobacco, uh, alcohol and gambling, we really have not done a good process in terms of regulating to minimize the health harms. We have been the the force of commerce and the force of the market trumps our regulatory frameworks in general. So we actually have to be very careful about that. And that's actually where we're likely also to trip up with cannabis. Mm. Mike Farrell, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Professor Michael Farrell is the director of the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre at UNSW. You're listening to The Health Report. Antimicrobial resistance, we used to call it antibiotic resistance, has been described as an emerging public health emergency of global proportions, which could thrust us back into the pre-antibiotic era where a simple wound infection could kill us. A major cause of resistance is the misuse and overuse of antibiotics and other drugs against microbes such as fungi. As part of the battle against resistance, last week the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare released its fifth report on antimicrobial use and resistance in human health. It showed scaringly high levels of use by international standards in our public and private hospitals and the ongoing emergence of dangerously resistant organisms. Professor John Turnage is a senior medical advisor to the Commission and was heavily involved in the report. I spoke to him earlier. You're welcome. Look, some of these statistics are pretty shocking. Like Australian hospitals have three times the rate of antibiotic use compared to the lowest prescribing country in Europe, the Netherlands, and it's certainly higher than Canada. We're well up there in international, if you like, the league table. Why is that? Yeah, it's a very good question, and I guess the important thing to say is that that is an estimate. There is, though, we have higher rates of use in the community as well. Antimicrobial use has become embedded in Australian culture, if you like, in terms of what patient expectation is and what the prescribers feel that they must do. I mean, the contrast here is that GPs seem to be doing quite a good job. I mean, despite the fact that antibiotic use is high in the community compared to other countries, it's coming down. 
And when you look at your data on antimicrobial resistance, bugs that are resistant to antibiotics, that seems to be reducing in the community while it seems to be going up in hospitals. In other words, it's almost proof of concept here that if you do take the foot off the accelerator with antibiotics, the bugs respond. Yes, but there's a bit of a sleeper issue here, and it's not obvious to everybody. Most of the resistance that we see in hospital is brought in on the patient. We're now in a very interesting situation where the old hospital MRSA, which plagued Australian hospitals, particularly on the eastern seaboard... Just to explain, this is methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus. So it's, a, it's an antibiotic-resistant golden staph, which has been a nightmare for some hospitals. That's right. That plague has basically evaporated. And now almost all of the resistance that we're seeing in hospital comes from two sources, people in the community carrying totally different types of the resistant golden staff and from aged care homes who seem in various parts of Australia to have picked up a UK strain many years ago. And, of course, aged care zones are very difficult places to control antibiotic resistance because of hygiene issues and high antibiotic use. Well, and since you mentioned aged care, 40% of antibiotic prescriptions in aged care, according to your report, are for continuous antibiotics, for which there's almost no indication. And also GPs are leaving prescriptions made up for the judgment of the staff to give to them when if the circumstances are right. I mean, that's less than ideal. Yeah, no, we all recognise that. And in fact, we've been making quite a lot of noise behind the scene about the fact that this practice, which has become embedded in aged care, really has to change. Let's go back to hospitals. Whilst you've said that the bugs are imported from the community, which is not a new phenomenon, nonetheless, you are picking up quite significant acutely resistant organisms which show in danger signs of being resistant to most antibiotics, and that's in hospital once the bugs are in. And you, you're quoting, for example, only 68% compliance with guidelines for surgical antibiotic prophylaxis. That's getting antibiotics before surgery. 39% compliance after surgery and other inappropriate prescribing in the hospital situation. And it's worse in private hospitals, particularly with the prescription of what are called broad spectrum antibiotics, which are much more likely to cause resistance. What's going wrong in hospitals? My answer would be, I'll put it a different way, why isn't it going right? And the reason I say that is, of course, we now have as part of uh, mandatory hospital accreditation that all hospitals, big, small, private, public, need to have antimicrobial stewardship programs, which usually consist of expert pharmacists and infectious diseases, microbiology, reviewing on an ad hoc or a daily basis the prescriptions that are going on. We are trying to turn around to Titanic in terms of the high antibiotic use and the inappropriate use. We realise these programs are still developing, more challenging to implement in the private sector, partly because the number of pharmacists available and access to ID micro advice is more limited in those settings. But that's no excuse. Do we have an explanation for why there's such variation between states and territories? Part of the variation in the usage is one of the measures that we apply to that, and that is called defined daily doses for 1,000 occupied bed days, basically saying how many people on any one day are receiving antimicrobials. But if you happen to use three antibiotics to treat a particular common infection rather than two, your defined daily doses will go up. 
So there is an element of slight of distortion created by that defined daily doses. But not necessarily the best medical practice either. No, no, no. Well, that's correct. So it may be that using three antibiotics is the right thing and not the wrong thing because it means that those therapies are targeted and not broad spectrum in themselves. But uh, the other source of variation between states is that antibiotic resistance is rather low in states where the defined daily doses are high. So you look at Tasmania and you go, well, that's good. Their resistance rates appear to be consistently low across the board, and yet their hospital usage is high. So the variation requires much more in-depth analysis and access to data we currently don't have. So you're describing a situation which is turning the Titanic around before it hits the iceberg, the iceberg releasing resistant organisms. You also sound a note of warning about fungal infections like candida and others and the increasing prescribing rates against fungal infections in our hospitals and worrying that fungal resistance may arise, which is not there yet, but in some countries it is, and it's a nightmare when it occurs. Yes, and we were very keen to start moving into the antifungal space. We don't have a complete picture, but we at least have a snapshot saying rates are low, but we're concerned that those rates may well increase with the increasing use of antifungals. Why are we using more antifungals? The answer is we're doing so much better with cancer chemotherapies, but because of the immunosuppression, fungi becoming much more prominent problem for those patients. And we have a big opportunity to ensure that the rates of resistance stay low. Now, it's not part of your report, but one source of antibiotic resistance in the community is, in fact, from our food supply. How are we going with antibiotics, particularly as a growth agent in turkey, chickens and indeed cattle? I think most of that has evaporated. So you're confident the use of antibiotics in our food supply has disappeared as an issue? No, it's not disappeared and there are still some small battles to fight. But to be honest, it seems that the veterinary and agricultural sector has been more receptive to the message about restraint with antibiotic use than much of what's happening in human health. Humans are harder to convince than animals. Thank you very much, John. You're welcome, Norman. Professor John Turnage is a microbiologist at the University of Adelaide and a senior medical advisor to the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. When a baby is born premature, every second counts. Those little people are so vulnerable and often have needs requiring immediate medical attention. So the idea of slowing anything down in those first few moments seems counterintuitive. But a pair of new studies has shown that, at least when it comes to cutting the umbilical cord, taking your time really matters. Lena Zietler is lead author on both studies and joins us now. Welcome, Lena. Hello, thanks for having me. First things first, how long are we talking when it comes to cutting the umbilical cord? So we're talking about only a couple of minutes, really. So first um, studies that started this waiting to cut the cord only wait for 30 seconds and some for one minute. And now those latest studies we've been looking at are more like two to three minutes. So something that may seem like quite a short time period, but when you have a baby that's born too early prematurely, it can feel like quite a long time. So at first blush, this seems really similar. We've reported on those studies that you mentioned before. Previously on the health report, the 30 seconds, the one minute, um, even just in the last year or two. So what's different with your study compared to what we've reported on in the past? 
Yes, so in my study, we were for the first time able to look at different timings of waiting, not just that whether we should wait or not, but how long we should wait for. And currently, guidelines um, vary on that quite a bit, so there's no clarity. And they usually recommend fairly short times. For example, in Australia, the Australian New Zealand Committee on Resuscitation says to clamp for at least 30 seconds. Now, we actually found when comparing different times of waiting that wait, the longer we waited, the stronger the mortality reductions we saw. So we found the largest reduction in deaths of babies when doctors waited for at least two minutes. I think it's really important to highlight this metric of uh, we're, re- we're literally talking about life and death. Yes, exactly. So we're talking about reducing sub- reducing death of babies born too early. And a lot of babies born too early die every year globally. So we can really save babies' lives here. So what does it take to wait that, you're saying two plus minutes, like you say, that's a really long time in that moment. Um, These babies have all sorts of needs when they're born. What does it take to wait that two minutes safely while still having the umbilical cord intact? Yes, so it's really important that the doctors don't just stand in the corner of a room with a stopwatch, but instead really provide the initial crucial care to these babies with the cord intact instead. So the baby can be dried, wrapped, um, they can be stimulated, and most recently they may even be able to be ventilated with a cord intact. So it's important to take best possible care of these babies with a cord intact. And importantly, there may also be babies that are too sick, that are doing too poorly um, to wait. So this may not apply to every single baby. This research that you have just finished doing, it brought together researchers and projects, not just from Australia. You were talking to people from, or you were working with people from 28 countries. Most, most uh, birth settings in Australia are pretty well equipped. That's not the case everywhere. How do these findings of yours translate into low resource settings, low and middle income countries? Yes, I'd really love to be able to tell you, but unfortunately I can't really. So whilst we've had studies in lower middle income countries, all of these studies were conducted in hospitals that were highly resourced, that had neonatal intensive care units available. So we don't really have any data on this, which is really sad because this is a low-cost, low-tech intervention and a lot of babies born prematurely in lower research settings, they are really the ones that need the survival benefit even more. So I'd love to see future research on that. So what are the recommendations now? It feels like there's been a fair bit of research into this now. You've brought together this really comprehensive study looking internationally. How do we act on this? So we're already working with international guideline developers to translate this finding into into international guidelines. What I re- would really like to see is more doctors feeling comfortable to wait for longer times um, to get these survival benefits for babies that are born too early. So yeah, I'd like to see longer deferrals, but whilst making sure the baby is warm, breathing and cared for. Lena, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Dr. Lena Seidler is a Senior Research Fellow in the NHMRC Clinical Trial Centre at the University of Sydney. Norman, what do, you, what do you make of these studies? You've been reporting on this for years now, since much before when I started at the Health Report. 
Yeah, look, the, the, the issue in medicine is that we have the evidence for lots of different things and it takes a long time for it to be put into action. So, for example, um, if you'd looked at the medical literature, you'd have known, this goes back a, few, a couple of, two or three decades, you'd have known that low-dose aspirin, after you've had a heart attack, prevents, you know, cuts the risk of another heart attack and death. I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's around about 20%. So that's a very significant uh, reduction for the sake of a drug that costs a couple of cents a day. Yet it took 25 years from that evidence being available to going into action. So the challenge is always just do it when the evidence is there. And this is not an example. Well, let's hope those in the know are listening. But that is where we have to leave you for this week. It is indeed. We'll see you next week. See you then. Reliable health information is so hard to find and we all have so many questions. Is it supposed to hurt this long? Do your teeth move when you get older? Good thing we've got a new show, What's That Rash, where we're answering the health questions everyone's asking, like what's the deal with night terrors? And why do all these wellness influencers care so much about my gut? We'll be answering your questions every week. Search for What's That Rash and send us a line, but don't send us pictures of your rash. No. Find us on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.